the implications are amazing. And I don't want it to be unclear. I'm certainly not saying that I'm complaining about this. Nothing can be further from the truth. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm Ellie Perlman, here to bring you the personal side not often heard from the most successful, interesting, and entrepreneurial people who made it big in real estate. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties and help investors join me on all my deals so they can get double-digit returns. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, basically everywhere. Uh, you can go to my website, ellieperlman.com to subscribe to the show. And today I have a guest that I already had on my show earlier in one of the bonus tracks that I released. He was speaking about self-storage, Hunter Thompson. Hunter is a full-time real estate investor and a founder of Cashflow Connections, a private equity firm based out of LA. Since starting the company, Hunter has helped more than 250 investors allocate capital to over 100 properties. He has personally raised more than 20 million in private capital and controls more than 60 million in commercial real estate. Hunter has been featured in Forbes and other great magazines and, you know, in podcasts and radio shows. Hunter's story is fascinating. He's actually going to share a story from an earlier times from his grandfather, uh, who was a savvy businessman that went through one of the most catastrophic losses and bankruptcies that you've ever heard of. Hey, Hunter, welcome back to the show. I'm really excited to have you here today. Hey, thanks again for having me on. It's so nice we did it twice. So yeah, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And I think your story is pretty unique because most of the stories that we've heard so far, they had some sort of, you know, difficulty of a challenge. But this one is no short than a catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't agree more. And we'll definitely get into kind of the severity of what we're talking about. I think there is some key takeaways. I think when you lose money, there's always things to learn and maybe some lights at the tunnel, which, uh, you know, we can get into as well. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start. Why don't we start with the first, you know, stage, the initial part of the story. Can you tell us a little bit about your grandfather, which is the, his, you know, his story that you're sharing here today? Can you position us, you know, where he is, what he's doing, where he lives so we can kind of get into the story. Yeah, sure. So my grandfather was a successful businessman in the 70s and the 80s, and they worked in the cotton company, and they had been in the business for about 70 years or almost 100 years at the time, uh, international cotton. And there was, you know, back then, obviously, dollars were much more meaningful. So in about 1987, they did about $150 million of revenue. In about 1988, they did about $179 million worth of revenue. And this was basically all 
international. And you know, back then it's kind of hard to, to get an understanding of what it means to be a market mover because we think of how we get information now. We have get information from Twitter, we get information from Facebook or the media. It's very different back then. But in the cotton business at the time that this all started, uh, my grandfather was considered a major market mover, similar to the way that if Carl Icahn comes on CNBC and says that he's going to buy a bunch of Bitcoin, that will move the market of Bitcoin. That will move the entire market because if someone of that nature starts to do that, it makes an impact on the entire business. And that's how he was, particularly in the cotton niche. And um, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and so is he, and that's where uh, the story all started. But basically, they had built a business, been able to pay their debts for almost 100 years, and, and something really unique started to happen. And we can get into that as well, but that's kind of the, uh, the back way. Got it. And was he involved with other, with other partners, or did he do it by himself? Was the family also involved in the business? Yeah, so it was actually owned by his father, and it was a very large company. I don't remember exactly how many employees, but the complexities of something involved in you know, $100 million of revenue, you can imagine a very large corporation. Uh, with yeah. you know, attorneys and accountants, I mean, teams of those types of people in an entire office, et cetera. So, you know, a very large corporation, um, especially in Tennessee, which, mm-hmm. you know, is not home to a lot of really large yeah. multinational international companies. Yeah, absolutely. And besides the, the cotton business, were they involved in other types of investments or businesses or was that the main thing that they did? Yeah, typical businesses and, and real estate investments. I mean, the typical ways that most wealthy people store and generate cash flow. But the main driving factor of the business was cotton. I mean, overwhelmingly, more than 95% of the, the entire portfolio was based on this cotton business that had historically been extremely reliable, you know, to all the lenders and all the creditors and, and all the investors as well. Mm-hmm. So they did buy real estate in addition. Probably, you know, they had some capital that they, you know, needed to place somewhere instead of just paying tax. I'm sure in the 70s, it was the same, even though it was, uh, I think it was 10 at the time. So they were involved in the cotton business. They had real estate also that they've owned. They were involved in multiple kind of businesses. And that, that's that been going on pretty well. Very successful company back in the 70s with, you know, probably hundreds of employees, if not more. And then, so let's move to the next stage where where can you tell us what was the first sign of trouble when things kind of started to take the wrong turn? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, before the trouble, right, becomes the mania. And so really the shift that took place is that he noticed that there was a unique situation taking place, which can result in a shortage of cotton. And this is a combination of weather and just supply and demand. It's just a very interesting uh, situation, very similar to, let's say, it's comparable to oil, right? In the sense that there's massive shortages take place and those result in massive price increases. And the oil business is a great comparison because randomly sometimes you'll have like an embargo, for example, which will create a massive price increase. So, he saw a cottage shortage that he anticipated taking place and he anticipated the shortage resulting in a pretty significant price increase. So we had, you know, at the time, access to a significant amount of debt. So in order to capitalize on this shortage and then that, uh, that price increase, uh, he ended up leveraging really significantly for the first time in the history of the company. So about 10 to one. And I'm talking about almost half a billion dollars worth of additional leverage on this company to take advantage of this shortage. And so the shortage ended up happening pretty much exactly as he predicted, but the increase did not happen. So it's a very short window of this because the the debt payments are so large that it becomes extremely burdensome to carry that debt. So the shortage happened, 
one month goes by, two months go by where everyone's watching the price. And eventually, you know, three months, five months in, the bank says, look, we are completely overexposed. It was all one lender that did this. They said, we're completely overexposed to your business. We're completely overexposed to cotton. We are going to be in a really precarious financial situation if we don't call this loan due. And so they ended up calling this loan due for more than half a billion dollars, or almost half a billion dollars. Wow. And that's when things started to get really gross. I mean, that was when a combination of seeing that shortage happen, realizing that you called it right, and then realizing that the price increase didn't happen because there's complexities of this business which are beyond human comprehension. But as that loan came due, you know, the wheels started to fall off. Everything, you know, really quickly unravels. And, you know, we can get into what that really entailed, but that's when uh, things started to turn around for sure. Unbelievable. So all this is happening and it's again, back in the seventies, your grandfather, he was in that cotton business. He sees an opportunity. He predicts something. He didn't really see it. And he was right in, in one part of it in terms of, you know, there was a huge shortage, but prices did not increase. And based on what he thought, where he thought the market is going to go, he's over leveraging and, and putting everything at risk. And the bank is knocking on the door. They, and, and, you know, the bank wants, you know, to get the money. And this is basically, that was the end. Well, I don't know. You tell me, you said it was, you know, personal bankruptcy. And so walk me through you know, what, what is happening now when everything is kind of falling apart. Right. Well, I'll just kind of clarify because there's obviously when something this catastrophic happens, especially if you're in the family, you you hear a lot of very biased opinions on this and everyone has an opinion on this that's related to this situation. And because of how large it was, there's a lot of different opinions about this. But imagine a situation similar to what was going on in the mortgage business in 2005. So the argument could be that you know, why were all these people buying mortgages? Why were all these people getting access? Many people, you heard stories about people with no income, social security number buying a half million dollar home. And you'd say, why are they so stupid as to do that? Well, what about the lending institution? What about the fact that the banks were saying, wow, we're printing money all of a sudden. We can just give loans to anyone. So there's a component of that that needs to be taken into consideration. Why was this lending institution so over leveraged? It was a similar situation. They go, well, we got this sap over here that's been able to pay us for the last hundred years. Yeah. We're going to make a boatload yeah. on this trade. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when it comes to it, it's just, actually, can you repeat the question? I just wanted to touch on that real quick because I thought it was important. Oh, yeah. yeah what, what's yeah. going on now? What's going right. on? Yeah. So, right. So, you know, in terms of that financial situation, he was able to work through personal bankruptcy and business bankruptcy, but it basically wiped him out. I mean, emotionally and mentally, that was such a catastrophic situation for him to be able to recover professionally was almost impossible. And this is where it really comes into some of the key takeaways and why I'm so passionate about what I do, because we've talked, my grandfather and I have talked about this at length. And I think that, you know, we're both on the same page that he's really passionate about helping people avoid this because it's not necessary. You know, if you think about the implications of what it means to have a business that large and to be completely wiped out, if you just took a fraction of a percent of that net worth and invested it a more appropriate, let's say you took 10% of that and invested it in the types of investments that you and I are proponents of that have limited liability, that have in place cash flow, but have the ability to produce, you know, long-term gains. The implications are amazing. And I don't want it to be unclear. I'm certainly not saying that I'm complaining about this. Nothing can be further from the truth. I mean, this is the story that shaped my personality. This is the story that motivated me to get out there and help families 
diversify out of the stock market because I think stocks have a lot of the same implications. No, not as volatile, not as serious, but I'm a huge proponent of predictability of outcome. And that's when you start to get into some of the challenges and lessons learned from this situation. So for, in terms of him, you know, this basically removed him from the workforce, I mean, permanently at the time. For me, I think that looking at things like the debt portion of the capital stack and how the debt is absolutely the most critical part of protection of capital is very telling. But right now, in this cycle, the date of this recording being 2018, it's very hard to make the argument that we're not at the top of the cycle or at the right. end of the cycle to a certain degree. And so because of that, people are talking about protection of principle. Well, when I talk about protection of principle, you know, 99% of all the losses in the real estate sector have to do with debt. So that's the main factor of protection of principle, looking at the debt, looking at those terms and trying to identify how aggressive or conservative uh, this investment particularly is. Um, there's a myriad of other takeaways as well in cash flow and diversification and not focusing exclusively on a very volatile asset class. But generally speaking, it's all about the debt and that's what investors should be paying attention to. Right. I think it's a really, really good advice, especially when it comes to over leveraging. And, you know, today I can share from my experience of what I see today, there's a lot of deals out there that you know, most of them don't make any sense. And, you know, in, in the multifamily sector, and you see a lot of, you know, a lot of lenders out there that are willing to give to extend the leverage a bit. And I'm always very, very worried if you need, in my opinion, if you need to, if in order to get a deal, you need to take a little bit, you know, higher leverage than 70 75% LTV, then I think this is not a safe deal. And I love the story. I like how, you know, just you learn from someone else's mistake that, you know, your, your grandfather's mistake by making a prediction and, and making a bet on something uh, on where the market is going to shift, where you don't really have a lot of, you do have influence to some extent, and he has probably more influence than we have today on the real estate market, being a, a market mover, but still taking such a huge bet literally on your business that put everything at risk. Did he share with you how he felt when, when that was happening? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, so, you know, this is something that Grant Cardone talks about. Look, if, you, if you've got a $2 million loan and you go into default, you got a big problem. If you have a half billion dollar loan and you go into default, you have a friend right? That's the whole story. This was one of those situations. This bank was essentially a partner of the company. I mean, imagine mm. that one bank being the entire lending. This is not a, a multinational bank. This is a big bet that this bank was making. And so these were friends, lifelong friends. And so you have this combination of relationships that have been curated over a century, all of a sudden turning to you're going to pull the rug out from under us right now when the shortage happened. And this, that's like, I mean, this again, this is my grandfather speaking, not me, right? So it's basically saying, are you kidding me? This is the time at which you're going to do this after everything that we've been through. And then not only that, I mean, when you're talking about leveraging personal assets to get access to more debt, these are other family members' assets. So when something collapses and everyone goes, wait a minute, you used this asset as a way to get more collateral for this loan, then everyone starts suing each other. I mean, these kind, the size, the sheer scope of this 
catastrophe lends itself to complications that most people will never have to face in their life. I mean, I am praying that no one listens to this that has to ever sue a family member of theirs. And because uh, the way yeah. that the legal court system works, you have, there are certain steps you have to make to recover certain losses if that's your goal. And by the way, family members don't like it when you sue them, even if it's just <laughs> an effort to recover those losses. Yeah. It's something that can put an unbelievable burden on the entire family emotionally and financially. And so, like I said, you know, my family was able to recover from this, you know, both financially and emotionally, but it certainly was not pretty. And if I can help one person avoid that, that's what I would love to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And do you know what was the, if the real estate that they owned back then was also impacted or was the, the over leveraging was only for that cotton part of the business? Well, the real estate itself was fine, right? But it's all about the debt. So yeah. when someone calls a loan due for a business that you own, that you're basically your assets that you've used as collateral for everything, things start to fall off. So let me just clarify what I'm talking about when I say that things started to turn around. I'm talking about going from having a business generating $100 million of revenue to complete financial catastrophe. I'm talking about business bankruptcy. Uh, everyone has to get fired. All the employees have to figure out a new way to, to do their job. Their entire family's source of revenue is completely eliminated. I'm talking about going from $100 million a year to zero to a personal wow. bankruptcy, to business bankruptcy. And there was a lot of personal loans associated with these loans. And that, that was it, that he used all of his own personal assets to get access to all of this debt. Mm -hmm. And so it all came crashing down. So like I said, the real estate, yeah, sure, the real estate was fine. But when the bank is seizing every asset you own, that becomes a major, major problem. Yeah. And just to add insult to injury, while this was taking place, the price increase happened. So- Remember when I said that he was like a market mover, right? Mm -hmm. So he, he's dictating where these markets are going to a certain degree. And a lot of people are listening to him in terms of his guidance. So as a bank is seizing all of his assets, as a bank is closing down his firm due to over leverage, he's getting emails from people that have been investing with him and following his guidance for years saying, thank you, I made my first million dollars because of your pick. And wow. something that, you know, like I said, pretty much no one can imagine, let alone the loss, but also seeing, you know, if we had another 12 months or whatever, what, what this would have meant financially or what this would have meant from an economic standpoint, just because of the implications are so massive. I'm actually interested to hear how your family, is, how they managed to survive this and emotionally, you know, move past you know, whatever was going on back in the 80s when everyone was suing everybody. Something that, you know, to this day, it's fascinating. I mean, doing research, because I'm actually one of the first people to talk about this. And I did get the okay from him to discuss mm -hmm. this publicly. It's only the second time I've ever done it. I know that the structure of your show kind of lends itself to these types of stories. And I thought it'd be appropriate to come on and discuss it. And when I do, it's almost like a, a weight off my shoulders because it's like this unbelievable thing that, that took place so long ago, but still plays a role in, in everyone that I know's life to a certain degree. Yeah. But you know, those relationships are very cautious. I would say that the vast majority of families that had to go through something like this, they will not recover. They will not have relationships with each other ever again. There's many, many stories of this. I mean, just having a significant amount of money in a family is usually enough to break the family up, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. You've seen that. So um, to, to have that and then to lose that is uh, pretty catastrophic. But I'd say that 
you know, focusing on, you have to focus on cash flow. And if you can focus on cash flow, you can avoid a lot of these problems that many, many people suffer with on a regular basis, especially on a market cycle basis. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So when you say that you have to focus on cash flow, what exactly do you mean? Because that sentence can mean different things to different people. Great. And you know what? That brings up another good point. You mentioned, I said the debt portion and you mentioned loan to value. Similarly, debt can mean different things to different people. Loan to value is a very important metric. I think it's the one that's probably the most important to pay attention to. But I'm sure that when, when you look at the debt portion, you don't just say, oh, 70% loan to value. It's very conservative. Let's sign the documents. You go through and you say, let's see every single line item of the terms of this debt. And and probably the second most important portion of the terms of the debt is the debt service coverage ratio. So when I say cash flow, I'm really referring to the ability of the asset to produce cash flow above the debt service. And so that's the one thing that I think people should, again, be be paying attention to because that's going to tell you whether or not this investment is going to make sense. Mm-hmm. And then the next portion, you know, other than just the cash flow component, which is not an ongoing basis, it's the term of that debt. How long do you have to add value to the property before you're anticipating refinancing or selling? And so there's many, many people, again, going back to the, the century track record, there are many people in real estate that had a century track record by the time 2008 happened and lost assets not because of the lack of cash flow, not because of the fact that they weren't able to pay the debt service, but because the loan came due, they were in an asset class that didn't have a lot of liquidity, the balance was owed, and they couldn't refinance or sell because there was, the market seized up. Now, 2008 was an aberration. It's not something I'm anticipating happening again for another 100 years. or It's not something we're planning on taking place every eight years, right? But still, um, it, it really paints the picture clearly as to how you lose money in real estate. It's all about debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I totally, totally agree. Well, thank you so much, Hunter, for being on my show again and sharing this amazing story. I really hope that none of the listeners out there is going to, you know, experience even half of that, because that could be just recover from this is, is amazing. And I would like to, you know, thank you again. And just my last question is, where can people find you if they want to learn more about, you know, who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. And and by the way, I want to thank you again for having me on. I really like the program because there's so much positive rah, rah, rah information out there. It's always good to slow people down and say, what's the time you learn the most? And it's always those devastating stories, depending on the variance of their career. So people can learn more about me at cashflowconnections.com. I also have a podcast that talks about commercial real estate and economics, and that's the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. And if you shoot me an email at info at cashflowconnections.com, I'll shoot you a couple emails books on the types of assets that we invest in. All right. Great, 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 great. Well, thank you again. And I'll talk with you soon. Thank you so much for your time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.